And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 80 today, The Cosmic Hologram with Jude Curavan. Uh, Jude is a cosmologist, author, planetary healer, and futurist. She was previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK as CFO and on the executive boards of two major international companies. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford University, specializing in quantum physics and cosmology. She also has a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading in the UK, um, researching ancient cosmologies. Uh, what's going on, Jude? How are you? <laughs> Don't ask me, Mike. <laughs> That's quite, I'm, that's, very, I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted to be in California myself. So I think on the same timeline as, as you guys. Yeah, you have quite the uh, resume there. Yeah, that's a mouthful for sure. It, it is a mouthful. I mean, you're <laughs> very happy to cut it down in whatever way you work. No, no, I thought that no, you got to. You got to get it all get in the credentials. There. Yeah, you got to get what you do. You, you work for all that stuff. So we got to give you props for it. Well, that's very kind. I guess I, it's a scenic route, isn't it? And, yes. you know, there's a there's a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard, whose quote I love, he said, we live life forwards and understand it backwards. So what I'm finding is all those very disparate, you know, threads of my life actually do interweave in something that is slowly beginning to make some sort of sense. So uh, thank you. Sure. Um, so after reading your book um, and looking into, you know, some of your lecture movies on uh, youtube and stuff uh it seems like you have kind of a whole different perspective on on cosmology and the different um you know the theory of relativity and all that kind of stuff um and your book kind of outlines this it's like a, a new take on stuff that's already out there is kind of what i gathered like you're, you're looking at it from a different lens you, you didn't really do any new math or anything like that. It's just taking what was already there um, and reframing it in a way that makes more sense based on the fact that cosmology and quantum physics and everything's kind of been at a standstill recently. Yeah. Um, so is that, is that, was that your approach or is that just how it kind of unfolded or? I think a bit of both really. I mean, a couple of thoughts on that, you know, Marcel Proust used to say that, you know, the journey of discovery is not seeking new lands, it's actually seeing with new eyes. Mm. And I think what's been happening over the last few years is the evidence has been coming forward, you know, literally at all scales of existence and across numerous fields of research, as I describe in the Cosmic Hologram, that is, set, that is actually showing us a way forward to actually go beyond the apparent impasse um, that, you know, the, the, the two pillars of 20th century science quantum physics and relativity theory aren't enough to really take us then deeper into the true nature of reality. They've been amazing steps forward, but we've spent nearly more than 80 years trying to reconcile quantum physics and relativity with very limited success. And it seemed to me that over the last few years, the evidence is coming forward to show that, you know, the energy matter of our universe, which is what quantum physics describes, and the space-time, which is what relativity describes, are not themselves fundamental. They are emergent properties of a more fundamental reality, um, which is informational, you know, which is, so our universe emerges as a, as a emergent phenomenon, 
essentially of cosmic consciousness and cosmic consciousness expresses itself as meaningful in formation and we can restate the laws of, of physics the laws of thermodynamics as laws of information and when you do that it's a bit like solving a rubik's cube quantum physics then you know comes out as 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 an ex as a description of information expressed as energy and matter and relativity comes out as a, a, an expression of information expressed as space-time in a complementary way. So it all hangs together like a cosmic, you know, like a cosmic Rubik cube or a cosmic hologram in this case, which shows how our universe literally exists and evolves as a unified entity and has the, I think, the bigger advantage, not just reconciling the science, but actually reconciling the science with spiritual traditions of all ages and actually showing that, you know, we live, we experience um, ourselves as human beings um, within what Sir James Jinks called a great thought of a universe rather than a great thing of a universe. <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think, I, the one main thing that stuck out to me from reading your book um, was this idea normally entropy is described as in our universe as everything going from uh, order to disorder yeah. um, and with what you were just describing with you know the laws of information dynamics kind of that it's the reverse that um, you know the further the universe expands the more that you know all these complex systems form uh it the entropy reverses and goes the opposite way so I, I found that one of the more interesting points in your book well it, it, thank you and and it was a really deep insight for me uh, because i always struggled with this idea of order to disorder i mean the basic premise is that um you know a closed system that the second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a closed system always increases through time. And cosmologically, we now, the evidence is strongly pointing to our whole universe being a closed system. And the, the so mainstream cosmology has sort of taken that back to the first moment of our universe, 13.8 billion years ago, which we know of as the Big Bang, but I rabbit on about it wasn't big and it wasn't a bang because that implies chaos. It's actually more like a big breath. And that um, this understanding of entropy as a measure of order disorder was not really what the discoverer, if you like, of this concept meant. Because Ludwig Boltzmann described entropy when he was looking at gases, you know, the thermodynamic properties of gases, more as the number of states, the number of microstates of a system. So it's the number of microstates that always increase over time. So if I was to knock a cup of coffee over, sure, it would be disordered because it would go all over me and the carpet. But actually what's happening is the number of its microstates as a system increases because it starts then to connect. You know, it's, it's all over the floor. It's all over my trousers, whatever. So it's that increase. So entropy is really about a measure of the microstates of an energetic system. Now that's fine as long as we're describing reality in terms of energy and matter, yeah? But when we expand that, we're not taking it away, we're expanding that to restate the laws of thermodynamics as laws of information or infodynamics, then the notion of entropy 
is actually then restated as the informational content of a system, of a closed system. And that's what people like Vlad Kovadral, who's a, 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 a quantum informational physicist, and are now saying. And the reason we can say that is exactly the same equation that describes the entropy of the energetics, thermodynamic energy of a gas is exactly the same equation that describes what I call the entropic or informational mm -hmm. content of a system. So what that means is when we apply that to our universe, our universe actually began in its lowest entropic state. In other words, the least amount of informational content within it, yeah? Mm -hmm. So as time flowed forward and space expanded in this holographic model of our universe, that needed to happen with space expanding to enable ever more informational content to be experienced within our universe. So the first law, which is all about conservation of energy matter or information as energy matter, is great because that enables our universe to exist. But you need that second law to enable our universe to evolve. So the first law then is expanded to a law of information expressed as energy and matter, which is quantum theory, yeah? Yeah. The second law we stated is a law of entropy, which actually is about time flowing and space expanding, and that's relativity theory. But the first is all about our universe existing. The second is crucial because that's all about our universe evolving. So what I've been able to do is to restate those two laws of thermodynamics to infodynamics, and I call that a new insight of informational science. So you don't need any more equations. That is the seeing of it with new eyes. Yeah, so um, for most, I guess, mainstream science, they would say that the universe, you know, matter and energy and time are fundamental. Um, you're saying that consciousness and information are fundamental. fundamental. Absolutely. Um, so in that case, I mean, that's kind of what, like you said, like what some of the uh, Eastern traditions and some of the ancient civilizations were talking about back then. Um, and I've heard you in some of your movies uh, on YouTube describe um, this in different ways. And I actually, what brought to my mind, um, if you want to, you said the big breath or the big, you know, that's what you call the big bang. But I, I got a sense of almost like Gnosticism, um, the idea that everything came from this one forethought or this one giant thing and that we're all just subsidiary little pieces of that one main thing, you know, which is kind of actually um, Hindu in, in a certain way, too. But, um, yeah, I just found that interesting. We're really into ancient civilizations and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I like that you have that background as well. Thank you. And it's great. I was, I was actually um, describing the, the Ishavraya uh, Upanishad yesterday because okay. it's, it, and, and it's so beautiful because it, it basically says that it says that, you know, um, supreme being or cosmic consciousness um, is everywhere, is all now, is all when, whether it moves or not. So just chill out and relax. <laughs> Basically, that was 3,000 years ago. But there's also this sense of the breath of Brahma, this, this out-breath, this ordered exploration, this experiential evolutionary process of universes as great mm -hmm. breaths. 
rather than great things. And, and you know, it's not just a theoretical perspective that's now converging with ancient spiritual wisdom. You know, I, I took a long time to really bring forward all the evidence. And what's interesting to me is having experienced realities in this way since childhood, that it's only literally been in the last few years that the evidence has powerfully come forward, um, literally to support this, this, this emerging concept of our universe, essentially as a, as a, as a cosmic hologram, you know, a, a cosmic hologram within the infinity and eternity of mind. And when you say we're little pieces, I think we're much more important than that. You know, I think we're microcosmic co-creators of a, of a universe, a universe soul that literally exists and evolves as a unified entity. But in every moment, it's evolving and experiencing and knowing itself in its totality. No, it's <laughs> fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you too, what's the what's been the consensus among your colleagues and other academics? Because I know we've had... Uh, another physicist on before Brian Keating, who wrote the book "Losing the Nobel Prize," um, and we, we were talking. We were talking about how you know academia is just you know seventy percent are atheists, and a lot of them don't even entertain the idea. Yeah, they poo-poo it. Yeah, they poo-poo any idea that's not you know considered materialist, reductionist type you know um, thinking. So, I mean, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on you know different people's takes on, on your work? Well, it's an interesting perspective because I think quietly a lot more folks um, are, they wouldn't describe themselves necessarily as religious, but they do often in quiet corners um, and not in public, um, you know, share that they do have spiritual experiences because mm -hmm. experience is so vital to, to this understanding. Because if you don't have any experiences of something greater or more interconnected, it's very difficult to actually bring, you know, perspective to it that is not reductionist. I mean, the world looks separate. The world looks materialistic. But anybody who's studied physics at all knows that when we drill down ever smaller and smaller, what we call solidity, the world of apparent solidity is actually 99.9999999999999% nothingness. And certainly the guys who are looking at information are now more and more realizing that information is more fundamental than space and time, energy and matter, as I describe in the book. But also we're finding this informational signature of the cosmic hologram through, you know, all scales of existence. So, for example, we talk about um, relationships and what we're finding is the entire physical universe is interrelated through geometries called fractals, yeah, fractal patterns. And we're finding those fractals from the scale of, of atoms. So when a, a, an atom changes, for example, from a metal to an insulator, its electrons pattern themselves fractally. We're finding the same patterns from that scale up to three billion light years across of vast webs of galaxies. But we're not, and we're finding on every scale in between, you know, on planetary scales, on solar system scales, you know, and not just through the so-called natural world, but human world as well. For example, two astrophysicists, Henry Lynn and Abraham Loeb, looked at the way that cities grow and galaxies form. And they looked at these in terms of 
densities, population densities of people, cities and stars for galaxies. And they found that exactly the same patterning. Mm-hmm. When we look at the internet, the fractal interconnections through the web links and the way that we use and the frequency that we surf the net is exactly the same patterning as we find in the biological ecosystem. So what we're finding is it's not just the physicists, it's the biologists, it's the meteorologists, it's the chemists, it's, it's the social scientists are finding the same patternings um, at all scales and throughout the natural and the human collective behaviours that are really the signature of the cosmic hologram. I mean, a um, couple of other thoughts for you is a, a collaborative of, I think, five universities uh, two years ago looked at the cosmic microwave background, which is the relic um, radiation left over from the beginning of the universe and found exactly the same fractal patterning within it. And we talk about, you know, uh, non-locality, you know, this, this what Einstein calls spooky action at a distance, but it's essentially, um, it, it, it's basically saying that at some level, the entire universe is fundamentally non-locally connected. In other words, within space-time, the speed of light is the cosmic speed limit, so causality prevails. But for our universe to exist and evolve as a unified entity, it needs to be completely non-locally connected. And actually, from a mathematical perspective, having that as a framework is the only way that quantum physics works. But last year, in August of 2018, uh, a group, a team from MIT, were able to entangle, in other words, non-locally interconnect, light from between the laboratory starlight 600 light years away and light from quasars 12.2 billion light years away so what all this evidence is showing is like the the, the you know the, the the level of evidence and the level of anomalies is rather like it was at the end of the 19th century when the physicists then were saying look we figured out everything don't bother coming and being a student of physics because there's nothing else to learn They didn't know about the electromagnetic spectrum. They didn't know about quantization. They didn't know about the relative space-time. But in their view, everything was sorted. And then, of course, the pioneers of quantum physics and relativity and the evidence, the evidence came along and the anomalies to the prevailing uh, mindset and framework came along and the whole thing just fell apart. And we had a 20th century scientific revolution. The elephant in the room, though, was that revolution did not really address the nature of consciousness. So that's been the elephant in the room ever since. And it's only now when we're having all the evidence that information is more fundamental than energy, matter and space time, that consciousness, cosmic consciousness, expressed as meaningful information, the evidence for that is coming forward. Of course, this means that instead of consciousness being peripheralized, it is front and center. It's got to the point now where the evidence is becoming overwhelming that consciousness and mind aren't something we have, but literally what we in the whole world are. And that is very, very challenging to folks who, who sort of associate consciousness something with religion and it's nothing to do with that per se 
but what it is to do with is a realization that we are not objective observers of a world that is just out there, but we are participants in a world that exists both out there and in here. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. you're, you actually uh, make a an interesting point. Um, I don't. I think in the philosophy of science, I think it was Kuhn who talks about what you were saying. How at some point there's going to be so much evidence that bottles up that you have a paradigm shift creating yeah. a scientific revolution. Um, yeah. And it seems that we are there on the precipice because, like I said, um, you have relativity, you have quantum physics, you've got people like uh, Lawrence Krauss and Sean Carroll arguing that there is nothing or the many worlds theory or whatever. Um, and then you have this other group, you know, like you and some other people that are thinking a little bit more open-mindedly about the subject who I think, I don't know how you can look at it from a reductionist view and get anywhere. That's the thing that I don't, I don't think you can. I agree. I don't think you can. And I think, you know, it's a very, very limited and, and, and fundamentally wrong actually. And my worry is that that, you know, materialistic reductionism and this this maintenance that the, the physical realm is the only realm, even though any quantum physics knows that, you know, the physical realm has to have a substrate in phase space to, to, to manifest, um, is untenable and it's dangerous because that separatist perspective, our beliefs drive our behaviours, which is what Thomas Kuhn absolutely understood. So if we have a fragmented perception of the nature of reality, to the extent that we see everything as separate and only materialistic, our behaviours follow that. And our behaviours coming from that fragmented perspective have brought us to the edge of climatic catastrophe. You know, the level of stress and tension within ourselves, because somehow we've left, we've dismembered our psyche through this process as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a fragmentation of our understanding of the, the world out here as well as a fragmentation of our perspective of the world in here. And this sort of steps forward. It, it, it absolutely honours relativity and quantum physics, but says they're not enough, just as they honoured Newtonian physics and said it's not enough. So we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but it seems to me that unless we can heal our you know, understanding of the nature of reality, we, we don't even stand a chance of healing our behaviours because we'll always be coming from this misunderstood, misguided and, and fundamentally incorrect you know, view of the myth of separation, um, rather than turning around and realizing that we are microcosmic co-creators of, of a unified reality that is a universe that's so amazingly, exquisitely fine-tuned and ordered that it, it literally exists to evolve. And we, you know, therefore there is purpose and there is meaning in everything that manifests. A purpose and meaning in us being here now and an opportunity for us to come together, you know, individually and collectively to consciously evolve. That's our choice. But we need to heal our perspective as reality, I feel. Yeah. We to do that. No, absolutely. Um, the other thing is, is I was curious. I have this thought that like, a lot of these scientists, physicists, physicists, cosmologists, 
they have this idea that they're going to crack the code and they're going to get all the fame and all the glory. They're the next Einstein, you know, um, and we need another, you know, Einstein and hopefully, you know, your work and other people's work starts to unfold and, and produce, you know, more results so we can get this ball rolling forward. But I have this idea that I don't think we're ever going to have all the answers and yeah. for somebody to pretend that, we, you know, we don't know what dark matter is. We don't know what dark energy is. Um, you know, what did Vera Rubin discovered dark energy and it's what kind of what propels, you know, galaxies, spiral galaxies, but it's like, she did. it was dark matter because she realized that, right. the way that stars went around galaxies could not be understood if, if the visible energy of matter was all there was. Right. So absolutely. But I, just this idea that's that, you know, like I said, it's almost like an egotistical thing. Like I'm going to come, I'm going to figure it out, but I don't think it's ever going to be completely figured out. In my opinion, I just think it's this, like you said, everybody's going to have to stand on the shoulders of the giant before them until, you know, keeps moving down the line. And maybe at some point towards the very end, there might be some sort of moment of a complete enlightenment, but um, until it gets to that point, I don't see how anybody can claim to have all the answers. I agree with you. And, you know, I say in the book, it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And the evidence continues. And even then, even when, if we if we come to some sort of perspective of, you know, whatever we want to call it, the cosmic hologram as, as a, an expanded framework of the nature of reality, that still just takes us forward into that next level of our adventure. Because for me, what the book's about is it's actually, I hope, a bridge that gets us from this wrongful perception of separation over the bridge into a deeper perspective of non-duality, but also doesn't judge duality because, you know, in the I Ching says, in the beginning was the one, the wholeness. The one became two, the two became three, and from the three, 10,000 things were born. So it's more about unity differentiating itself to explore, to experience, to evolve. But it's not about the separation. So, there, you know, unity isn't uniformity. Uni unity, awareness, and unified reality express, you know, within our universe as amazing, radical abundance and diversity. But it's still within that wholeness, that oneness. It isn't any way separate from it. And it's the myth of separation, I feel, that drives our dysfunctional behaviors. So it's a remembering of that wholeness and then celebrating the diversity. It's not about us becoming gray gloop. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. You know, this, we all come, you know, at every, you know, you see it all over memes, all over the internet. We are made of stardust, which is true. Um, you know, and there's a lot of people, uh, that, you know, talk about how we are the universe observing itself kind of a thing. But I've heard you talk about how we're not even needed in that equation that the universe can observe itself based on the fact that it's conscious, that consciousness is fundamental. Absolutely. And and that's not to, 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 to sort of downplay our importance. We're the result of 13.8 billion years of an evolutionary process to this point. We're incredibly precious. But if we don't wake up, grow up, show up, clean up, link up and lift up, mm -hmm. Gaia, you know, the, the, the problem is we've caused so much disruption and, and, and distillation of our beloved planetary home through this separation 
But if we don't make it, the universe will go on. The universe knows itself. We are its, you know, we are examples of its microcosmic opportunities to individuate its overall awareness. But the universe likes us, wants us, doesn't need us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, because there are other um, theories or ideas that, you know, are not the same, but similar, you know, like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked into biocentrism. It's the opposite in the sense that the universe, in your theory, creates consciousness and like something like biocentrism is that biology creates consciousness in, in the world around you. Same thing with uh, what is it? Tom Campbell's My Big yeah. Toe, like that kind of stuff. So it's it's an interesting differentiation. I think it's an important differentiation because a, a friend of mine is Professor Max Velmans, mm. who wrote the book, the, the sort of seminal book, Understanding Consciousness, and he talks about reflexive monism. In other words, there is the the sort of the third person or third aspect of, of perception, and then there is the, the the sort of personal aspect of this. And he differentiates between mind and cosmic mind and the infinity and eternity of cosmic mind in which universes are thoughts arising, great thoughts arising from cosmic mind that then through this big breath process exist and evolve. So in that sense, there is ever more individuated awareness because to differentiate mind, which is like the great ocean, from consciousness as an awareness, that droplet of the great ocean, yeah? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there, there really is, I don't think, any paradox because although, you know, my experience is that cosmic intelligence has been there from the get-go, the way that the, it is individuated into self-aware beings is part of that evolutionary process. And I'd say we're not just stardust. We actually go all the way back because the conservation of information expressed as energy matter in our universe is conserved through the whole cycle of its lifetime. So the hydrogen that formed the first atoms is hydrogen within us. The first stars, you know, and, and that the, the sort of through nucleosynthesis um, created oxygen and nitrogen and, and all the elements up to iron are within us. And we're also wearing gold, which is the which was formed in the collision of massive stars more than five billion years ago. So we're more than just the stardust. We go back to the get-go, you know, to the very first hydrogen. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say then, um, what, what do you think happens then when we die? Do you think we just, our molecules or atoms return back to the universe and become one again with the universe? Or what's your perspective on that? Well, the, the information expressed as and the energy matter of our bodies, yes, becomes beloved planetary compost in some way or another. But our consciousness continues. And I've direct experience of that. I've communicated with people after they've passed over, and they've told me things that I could not have known. And there's one story in particular that that comes to mind. If you'd like me to share it, sure. But I, you know, I I, I communicate 
you know, <laughs> my mum used to say I'd talk with anybody. I don't think she was realising it involved ETs and angels and demons and ancestors <laughs> and dead folks, but there you go. Um, it took place a little while ago, and it was a dear friend of ours who'd passed over. And my husband and I were getting ready to go to the funeral. And it was a bit, about a week after this gentleman had passed over. And so I went to the florist to choose some flowers to take with us to the funeral. And I walked into the florist and I heard very clearly our friend's voice in my head saying roses. Okay, so I thought, right, I'll get some roses. But then he made it clearer that it needed to be a yellow. Yellow was the next adjective that came. So, okay, yellow roses. Then I looked at some beautiful, bright yellow roses. And I got a very clear sense, no, cream yellow. Okay, so that cleared it. And then I got the word which was really embarrassing. He said, rose, not roses, rose, one cream yellow rose. And I thought, oh God, this is going to be embarrassing. You cannot go to someone's funeral with a single flower, you know, a single rose. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was so clear. So, okay, I got the one cream yellow rose and we headed off to the funeral. And we arrived there. And as we went into the rest home, um, the, the, the funeral home, um, his widow was standing there, looking obviously hugely sad. And we went up to her and I, I gave her the, red, the, the, the cream yellow rose. I didn't say anything. And the funeral was about to start. So it was only after the funeral service that we spoke to her again. And she explained, because when I'd given her the cream yellow rose, her eyes just opened in shock. So she explained, why? And she said when he was alive, her husband used to bring her every Friday of their marriage of many, many years, a bouquet of roses. And he would bring her, uh, the bouquet was all red roses, except for one cream yellow rose. Mm. And when he passed, it turned out she felt so lonely and just had no way of connecting with him. She thought he'd gone. So this was his way of telling her that, no, he was okay, he was fine, he was still him, and he still loved her. Mm. That's incredible. No, it's, yeah, it's like a crazy synchronicity story. Um, I think it's a bit more than a synchronicity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's I can tell you lots of synchronicities, but I think that was for the synchronicity. Right, right. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Do you, so you, you mentioned, you know, metaphysical entities and stuff have you ever looked into you know i'm sure you meditate and that kind of stuff but have you ever looked into you know some of the more recent studies with psychedelics like dimethyltryptamine and people ex you know experiencing this alternate realm I and mean, we've done a lot of episodes on it and anybody that talks about this dmt realm it's it's this completely different thing than normal reality it's not like maybe even eating mushrooms or something like that where it's you, you know you're still there but you're 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 kind of out of it um it's it's something that's completely almost like a different dimension so i was just curious what your thoughts pro were on the potential of of maybe different dimensions or dimensional jumping that kind of a thing well i've been experiencing multidimensional realms since i was four years old mm -hmm. so you know the first introduction I had to that was a discarnate light that came into my room when I was four years old and started to communicate with me clairaudiently. 
So that was just, you know, the, the, the first step of a, of a journey that's lasted over 60 years. So in those 60 years, I've never taken any drugs. Mm. I've been fortunately never needed to because I've experienced, I, I suspect, all of those shamanic realms that, you know, either you, you know, the, the, the many shamans reach through sacred medicine of, of plants of various sorts uh, and DMT, but I've never needed to, I've never needed that that trigger or that in need to do that. But I've experienced many, many different multidimensional realms, completely not having a body outside my body, standing in space, um, hyperventilating outside the galaxy, feeling the whole universe within me, communicating with divic realms and an elemental realms of Gaia, communicating and, 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 and with planetary law growth of our solar system and galactic consciousness and, 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 you know, angelic realms, what we might call, um, uh, you know, the ancient Egyptian netra, which mm -hmm. are more about principles of consciousness, ETs, you know, literally pretty much, and, and ancestors. And the thing for me that's been incredibly powerful, and it really is, is part of a huge part of who I am, is I get so much nurturing, support, guidance and validation and validation that is the story I just shared with you I mean how am I going to get that information other than the continuing consciousness of our friend after he passed over and that's a tiny story within over six decades of this exploration I've written about it to some degree but what I've written about and what I've experienced it's like the not even the tip of the iceberg is is, is having written it but it's brought me to where I am today. No, absolutely. The only reason why I asked you about uh, DMT was we had an author on recently, Dr. Andrew Gallimore, who wrote a book called Alien Information Theory. Um, and um, I know Graham Hancock's heralded his work a little bit. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with Graham. Um, I know Graham, yeah. So in his book, it's kind of similar to your theory of this universe and this reality, which is when you go into this DMT realm, that same thing, data is is you know at the forefront, and and he's a, a computational neurobiologist, so he was um, using a, a semi-automaton model to figure this stuff out. But his idea, same thing with like quantum entanglement, that when you go into these realms, you're connecting with something maybe across the universe, maybe in a different dimension. Um, and like I said, that that data and information is fundamental. So that, that might be an interesting book for you to check out, considering it's uh, kind of like that. a subset of your your work as well. Um, but uh, so going forward with your work, do you have any plans to, you know, continue the research with this or do you think that this is is just one chapter of many or how do you how do you approach this well thank you i mean what i'm doing is i'll continue to amass evidence so when the time's right for a second edition then i will incorporate all the additional evidence that's come forward even since you know the book was out a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, so i'll continue to do that and the evidence is all going in the same direction so this this non-local out non-local connection out to 12.2 billion years came out after it was last year came after the book but it's the direction mm -hmm. the uh, discovery of the um, holographic fractal pattern in the cosmic microwave background came out after the book was published so that's in the same direction 
um, an article that was published posthumously by Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog essentially talks about our universe as a cosmic hologram. So all the evidence is continuing to go in this direction of travel. So I will continue that. But I'm writing a second book, which is more about, well, it's called Gaia, Her Story. And it's a story essentially of a, a living planet, a living and evolving planet, ours, within a living and evolving universe. And the definition of living is way beyond biology. It's literally that our universe is 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 this intelligent, evolving great thought. Yeah, so it's not a dead universe, as my friend mm -hmm. Dwayne Elgin talks about in his book, The Living Universe. You know, if we if we just limit life to biology, we're missing this vastness of a universe that has intelligently evolved itself so that its most complex expression of individuated awareness at the moment is biological. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. It's super interesting. We're going to look forward to that as well. Um, now it's time for a couple woo-woo questions because that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we hang <laughs> our hat on. <laughs> we're hanging sound, our hat on the alarms get ready um, <laughs> i tell you what morris you're gonna have to do more than this to shock me so let's go ahead <laughs> um, well, it seems like you got your pulse on the uh, esoteric just as just as well as the biology you know the biological standpoint too so um do you think um you, you mentioned ets or extraterrestrials um what's your thought on that with the recent i mean i don't know if you pay attention here in the yeah, u.s to all the news the cnn and fox news um to the stars academy all that kind of stuff i was just curious what your thoughts were on all this ufo activity of recent well i'm very open to that i've had my own et experiences you know visibly of of, of ets actually being there very present be able to communicate with them and then suddenly winking out. I lived in the I've lived in the Avery landscape in, in England for many mm -hmm. years. So we've had the epicenter of the crop circles and 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 all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, many other experiences. I've got many friends whose focus is is ET communication and exo consciousness. Um, and my sense is though that in my experience, the majority, and I'm not saying necessarily all of the ET communications, but the majority are benevolent and supportive of us, you know, waking up if we if we can. But there's a free will, you know, with them not, in my experience, wanting to intervene because then we just infantilize ourselves, you know, further because mm -hmm. they save us. So my sense is that they're there, they're watching, they're, I, my sense is if it gets so dangerous that the planet herself is in absolute danger they will intervene but i think they're showing themselves now so that we are getting more used to them i think it's a nonsense to try and hide from governments and and you know thinking we'd be scared i think you know the governments are scared because one of the things i think is problematic is any et will be on their control i think yeah. that's very yeah. scary and the point in my experience is that the ets when they show themselves are doing so benevolently kindly but a few years ago um, a group of, of colleagues and myself were interested certainly one of my colleagues was interested in the group of attuning to and asking a question of ets and that question is how did you as a species of et get through a potential pinch point in your own consciousness and evolution 
where you'd come to the point we'd come to. Mm-hmm. And somehow you survived it and thrived from it. And immediately I got a clear audient message. We came to understand, experience, and embody unity awareness. In other words, they remembered the wholeness of reality and the profound um, interconnectivity of everything and the value and worth of all life beyond biological, everything in existence. And that's that moved me so much because it seems to me that that is our challenge and our opportunity and the only way in my perspective that we will, you know, let alone thrive, even survive as a species. But yeah, that is an opportunity. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you brought up an interesting point. There's almost like this, you know, I think it's Lawrence Franks. He talks about how the reason why we haven't seen any physical evidence for ETs based on what we've seen with satellites and going, sending stuff out is that um, there's these points in, in these galaxies and these solar systems where kind of like where we're at, where we're at a boiling point with, you know, whether it be climate change or everybody at each other's throats or nuclear war or whatever the case may be, that yeah. maybe these civilizations get to a point and then they extinguish themselves or collapse Absolutely. or whatever. So that was his theory uh, on that, or that's, I'm sure there's other people that talk about that too. But um, my thought is, is that all that stuff is purely consciousness based, meaning that, um, you know, like you don't really see any good videos or pictures of UFOs or aliens or whatever. It's always usually garbage, especially most of the stuff on the internet. Um, but our brain processes, the, our brain's like a supercomputer that processes things in a completely different manner than, let's say, a camera or a phone or whatever. Uh, so I've always been under the assumptions that when people have these experiences, it's consciousness based, whether it's sleep paralysis being a, a, an abduction experience or looking up in the sky and having a shared experience with somebody else where it's something that's interacting with your consciousness. So that was always my thought on that. I don't know if that. My sense is an and and, you know, it's an and and. Um, But certainly I've experienced physicality of ETs and also conscious communication with them. So I, 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 but I also, I think it's a very important point you make because when we connected with those ETs, they made it very clear that not every planet, dominant planetary uh, species survives. Mm. That, you know, there seems to be through the whole evolutionary and conscious evolutionary processes on planets that a point comes where a dominant species, you know, perhaps does, you know, has got, as we have so far into this materialistic separatist misperception that they're not able to wake up and yet they are, they are completely destructive. So planets and, pe- and, and species don't make it. And, you know, some take the planets with them. So mm-hmm. there's absolutely no guarantee that that's not going to happen to us and, and our beloved planetary home. But what I do feel is that we have enormous help at this time. You know, not just ETs, but on many multidimensional realms of guidance and support. But going back to sort of sense of free will and choice, it's for us to ask for that help and it's us to be open to that help and we can't do that if we're if we're limiting ourselves it's like we're we're closing our ears 
and closing our eyes and doing la 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 rather than just opening up to this incredibly wonderful multidimensionality of reality and then asking do you think some of these ancient civilizations had a better understanding for that stuff? Sure. Like the Egyptians and... I do. I mean, the Egyptians and also the ancient Indian. I mean, the rishis of ancient India, the Vedic scholars of ancient India, who actually wrote the, the Bhagavad Gita's and the, and the Vedanta and the Upanishads, had an amazingly profound insight into the nature of reality. But they were also human beings having a physical experience. And when we look at the archeology span of those times, you can see from satellite images, for example, um, of the Indus Valley and the Bhajrata culture, how the, the, the climate change then meant that their cities were having to be, um, uh, you know, the, the, the cities died because the water died. So they, they went through turmoil in their own lives. You know, at the end of the Bronze Age, there was some major um, climate change and a, and a destruction at the end of the um, old uh, kingdom of, of Egypt. You know uh, there was there was a massive downfall before it raised again. But these ancient this ancient wisdom, my sense is they not only understood profound insights the nature of reality, but through these incredible gifts that they left us of the Upanishads, or the very early earliest writings in, of Sumer, or the very early Chinese writings, or the Egyptian mystery school traditions, they managed to, to bequeath to us that ancient wisdom, at least a fragment of it that we're now, I hope, rediscovering and rehonoring, because now leading edge science is converging with that perspective. But with all the scientific evidence and understanding that we now have that they with all of those insights did not have no absolutely. uh makes a lot of sense so with your back uh background in archaeology uh what are your thoughts on gobekli tepe because there's obviously a lot of argument on who created it who was there there's a lot of symbology uh that you know from those they're called ancient handbags i don't know if you're familiar with that they're these you know they look like handbags and they're found all over the world on a lot of the megalithic structures um and there's also a lot of you know I, we had laird scranton on and there's some of the symbology that resembles some of the dogon uh symbology there's some of the symbology that represents or is connected to uh, aboriginal um stuff so i was just curious what your thoughts were on gobekli tepe well, I was there back in 2007, I think it was, because my husband and I were in Turkey. There was a solar eclipse, and we experienced the solar eclipse at a later settlement, but still a very early settlement called Çatalhöyük mm -hmm. um, in central um, uh, in central Turkey. And then we went out east to Gobekli Tepe, and the Germans were uh, excavating it at the time, but we weren't there uh, at sunset one night, and it, we had it to ourselves. It was just fabulous. So we were climbing all over it. It was great. And and yes, indeed, because the, the actual structure of it, I mean, from all that, as far as we're aware at the moment, it was a monument before the Neolithic. In other words, people were still fairly movable. You know, they weren't sedentary. They weren't based, but it has, I don't know if you've been, but it, Mike and Morris, but it's on the, the, the top of a hillside that has this incredible view around and at the time that it was built, 
probably had amazing sort of migratory herds of animals because it wasn't that long after the end of the last ice age. Um, but what's been interesting sort of over more recent years is this interpretation of what's called the vulture stone at Gobekli Tepe, which seems to um, identify a race memory of a near wipeout uh, event of either an asteroid or cometary fragments. Um, and there's more and more evidence now coming forward that suggests that when the last ice age ended, the temperatures were rising. And then an event happened about, I think, 9,800 BC, mm -hmm. which, and this was the, the timeline of Bebleki Tepe, yeah. where there was a, 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 an absolute fall, a precipitous fall in the temperatures again. And it's called the Younger Dryas or the Younger Dias. And the Younger Dryas seems to be, the evidence now seems to be coming forward that it was called, caused by near miss and that Bebleki Tepe monumentalizes it happening. So it may be that monuments such as Bebleki Tepe are there as warnings, you know, as there as monuments and, and warnings of, of that, what that happened. Uh, and in some way, maybe propitiating the gods or whoever was felt to be causing it not to do that again. And I think some of the much later monuments that track, um, that track, um, uh, you know, solstices and equinoxes and also um, solar eclipses are in a way, they're both connecting heaven with earth, but in a way are also trying to, to not just propitiate, but monumentalize um, what is ongoing and what could be disastrous. Yes, yeah, so yes. the the, um, the torrid meteor stream, since you're a cosmologist, you probably know better than most. Um, and we also had Martin Sweatman on recently who wrote Prehistory Decoded about Gobekli Tepe that correlates the archaeoastronomy with the uh, um, you know the constellations and stuff. Uh, but what are your thoughts on the torrid meteor stream? Do you think that it does present some sort of future trouble if we're not paying attention? I know Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, um, they're big on um, talking about how we need to be careful and we need to take a look at that. I don't know. I think we were just in or are in now the torrid meteor stream. Um, so I was just curious your thoughts on that. Well, if I'm if I'm right, and, and forgive me if I, if I'm having a senior moment about my memory, but my understanding is that the torrids um, are the debris field that come from a comet known as Enki. Yeah. And when that broke up, that was a near Earth comet that broke up, and certainly there appears to be large bodies within. Um, you know, that, that debris field. So at the moment, you know, we've been very fortunate. We have the meteors, the torrids as they come. But yes, there are very big bodies potentially within that debris field. I had a very interesting experience of this many years ago because I was going on a trip to Egypt. And the two or three nights before I went, I woke up from a dream and in the dream, I saw a symbol, and the symbol was a, a horizontal line with three lines coming down from it. Mm -hmm. And I was told this is a symbol of Enki. Okay. And at the time, I took that to mean Enki, the Sumerian god, E N K I, right. the brother of Enlil, and going back to the whole premise of the this extraterrestrial race that interacted with humanity yeah. 
very yeah that's right so we went on this trip through egypt and this the sort of the symbol kept coming forward and forward and forward and at the end of the trip um on a clairaudient level the group through me was guided to a tune with the three pyramids um at giza with the symbol and when we did several of the groups saw this incredible light going up through the pyramids and literally shooting out into the the atmosphere like a great sort of web of light and people seeing that with their eyes shut with their eyes open and i certainly did too so i went back home and a few months after that um somebody recommended i think it was graham hancock's book mm-hmm. um and in it he talks about enki and the taurids but in his spelling enki was e-n-c-k-e mm-hmm. and then i came across a book where this symbol was shown and i suddenly opened the page and this symbol was there and it said this is the symbol of enki e-n-k-i the leader of the dingur who were the anunnaki mm. and then i read again something that said that egypt was also known as the shield of thoth and the sumerian name of thoth was Ningizidu, who was the son of enki mm. and on an esoteric basis what i have a sense of is that on that activation we were being asked to activate the shield no, that, that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of theories on, on the Great Pyramids, you know, from uh, Christopher Dunn's oh, power plant theory. And, you sure. know, I know Robert Bivall's the, the, the Orion correlation and Graham Hancock's sure. got his own thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, all this stuff is just so fascinating. We could talk about this all this day. This was sort of so experiential. And, and I didn't know any of this when all that happened. So from that initial dream to the symbol, to the whatever we did and right. then to, to the realization afterwards that the Taurids were the debris field from this comet that was also called Enki with a different spelling. Now that's and an I interesting think, synchronicity right there. Yeah, and I think that was actually <laughs> yeah. So I think I think they they connected together. Right. Who knows? No, that that's an interesting experience, and I think that there might be something to that. Uh, as you know, we still have really no idea. Um, about a lot of these ancient civilizations, especially ancient Egypt. I know I feel a kinship, some sort of kinship to ancient Egypt, and I know Maurice has uh, too. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. It's super fascinating. Your, uh, your that book, was amazing. Yeah, your book, The Cosmic nice. Hologram, everybody needs to check it out. You also have written, uh, was it five or six other books? I um, think it's five other books, including one on some of these experiences. So The 13th Step, Okay. And a book called Hope, you know, look into some of these experiences and, and journeys over the years. But yeah, Cosmic Hologram is the one that is really uh, moving forward. And people can check you out at your website, uh, judecurvin.com. Uh, we have your link to your website and your Amazon page down below so people can look for your books down there. Uh, check us out at Mike and Maurice MindEscape.com. Uh, you can also check us out at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. Uh, Jude, it was a pleasure. We'll get you back on, especially when you uh, complete your next edition with this research. And uh, thank, thank you for you. coming on. Thanks, guys. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you again. Have a nice day.
You too. Bye for now. Bye. Cheers.